Literature it is, and I'm Nancy Richards. Lovely to have you with us. Well, it's a show, as you know, about words and writing and books and reading and missioning and building and reading aloud, amongst many other things today. So I hope you're going to stay with us for it all. Together with me here in Cape Town is Long Wabofani in Johannesburg. We have Sulufelo Pelo and Parks Molefe. And as I say, we have you, so very nice to have you with us. Hope you're going to stay right through to the end if you can. And if you want to give us a call, you are very welcome. The number is 0892 10 2010 So what we have on the menu today, first up, our hero item today, it's a book called Mission to South Africa, Diary of a Revolution, and it's a book by former British ambassador, Lord Robin Rennick, in which he looks back on the rather sizzling tension that marked his term of office here in South Africa. That was from the late 80s to the early 90s. After that, in our book club, whilst we're busy looking back in the book club today, antiquarian books. How much are they worth in these digital days and what qualifies as antiquarian? Well, we'll be finding out that and a whole lot more about very old books. In our text item, it being World Read Aloud uh, Day next week, in fact, March the 4th, I think it is, we thought we'd find out why reading aloud is so very different to uh, reading in your head. We're going to be chatting to Carol Bloch of Pricer. That's the project for the study of alternative education in South Africa. She's also uh, part of Nali Bali, uh, who you will know well if you're a regular listener too, uh, if you're a listener here to SAFM. Book two, A Building Plan That Became a Book, uh, unusually. It's the extraordinary story of the Victoria Mkenje housing project come to life in a book of the same name. And uh, Selma Ismail took, well, she took 10 years to research it, but uh, well, uh, 10 years to write it, I think, but a whole lot longer to research it. And we'll be talking to her following yesterday's wonderful celebratory launch of the book. And then in our bookshelf feature with a book title to recommend, we'll be talking to Sibu Siso Mjikiliso. He's a sports writer, in fact, at the Times Media, and uh, he's been giving us some thoughts on what's on his bedside table. And don't forget that you are welcome to tell us what you're reading. It seems to me that an awful lot of books flying off the shelves out there and somebody is reading them. So if you're reading something that you're really enjoying, let us know. Let us know why you're enjoying it. Pop us a mail, books at safm.co.za. And our story feature today is the second part of a, of a story and song. It's the second part of a documentary by Nigel Famas called Songs of Summer in Cape Town, Part 2. And after the news at three, Roger Webster, uh, the itinerant Roger Webster, should I say, he comes to us today from the little town of Rebec Castile, where he's meeting up with a couple of buddies. And he'll also be giving us a little bit of history about the, about the town itself. And in back page, we'll find out what Snaplify is in publishing speak. And I, I'm led to believe that it's something very digital. So if you're interested in digital publishing, maybe you should just stick around for that. That will be around about quarter past three here on SAFM Literature. And to close, as always, the Sunday play. So that's what we have lined up. Hope you're going to stay tuned. And don't forget, find us on Facebook. And then what we usually do is put up what we've got coming up uh, the following on the following show. So you get a bit of a heads up on what we've got lined up. Stay tuned. It's SAFM Literature. SAFM Literature it is here on SAFM. Lord Robin Rennick was the British ambassador to South Africa and at an especially significant time in our history, around about 1987, I think, to 1991. 
Well, understandably, he was extremely conscious of his and his country's role in developments at the time, and his detailed reports as they appear in his book, Mission to South Africa, Diary of a Revolution, reveal just how conscious he was of the very fine detail. Well, I spoke to him earlier from the UK to find out first where he'd been coming from when he was assigned this role. Well, it was an extraordinary time to be in South Africa because when I arrived, the country was in the grip of, of fierce repression. Most of the thousands of people were in detention without trial. The ANC leaders were in exile or in Lusaka. Um, the regime was extremely militaristic, complete with death squads. And most people were forecasting an absolutely disastrous outcome, ever greater isolation, ever greater repression, uh, greater violence, heading towards civil war and, and so forth. Now, that was the worst of times, if you like, but it also was the best of times because some truly extraordinary people in all camps, not just one camp, turned the situation around and engineered a, a, tra a peaceful, a relatively peaceful transition to a fully democratic constitution. Mm. That's why I've written the book, to pay tribute to all of them. Mm. So for you, it must have been both a challenge and an opportunity, uh, a great deal to be done as you arrived here. In fact, you, uh, with chapter one, you open with, uh, in July 1987, describing what you've just said there and what a difficult situation the country was in. But let, if we could just whistle back to contextualize your role in this, because prior to that, in your prologue, you talk about your role in the, uh, the independence of, of uh, well, Rhodesia as it was then, Zimbabwe as it became. What was your role in that? Well, I was the deputy to Lord Carrington in the negotiations at Lancaster House and to Lord Soames as governor of Rhodesia. The situation in Rhodesia was far worse than it ever became in South Africa because there was a full-scale guerrilla war. Um, 30,000 people had been killed uh, and a lot more in the neighboring countries. And Britain was constantly blamed for not doing anything about this, even though we had no real authority. The place had been self-governing for the past 40 years. So we proposed to Margaret Thatcher a very risky strategy, namely that we should intervene directly ourselves as the colonial power, um, take over the country for a limited period, organize a ceasefire and elections, and then hand over to, you know, whatever party won the elections. Now, other prime ministers would have been very wary of getting so heavily involved, but Thatcher was an extremely good risk taker. She was also politically courageous, and we had a certain amount of good fortune to get us through this very difficult period, but in the end we did manage to try to give Zimbabwe a fresh start in life from, you know, very, from a very difficult uh, military situation. Coming back to South Africa and talking about um, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, you talk about her as a risk taker and, and a courageous person, but she was much maligned in some quarters. And one of the reasons for writing the book is you talk about laying to rest the concept that Margaret Thatcher was a friend of apartheid. Yes, well, you know, the, the, my book, um, for the book, I was able to <clears throat> ask the Foreign Office so let me see all my reports to her and others, all my discussions with her, all the messages she sent to P.W. Borta and F.W. de Klerk and her exchanges with Nelson Mandela. Now, anyone who reads all those exchanges can't possibly believe for one moment that she was a friend of apartheid because every single one of them, starting with P.W. Borta, she was exerting all the pressure she could on the South African government to get rid of all the apartheid laws. So on sanctions, she, uh, she did support 
oil, military, nuclear and sports sanctions, reluctantly sports sanctions, but she didn't support general sanctions, um, would, which would have put, you know, half a million or more black South Africans out of work, their families destitute, with no social security whatsoever to fall back on. And I agreed with her about that, mm. by the way. What, um, given all of the above, what brief did she give you? Because you were appointed to be uh, British ambassador to South Africa between 1987 and 91. Very turbulent years they were. What, what, did you, what portfolio did you come with? Well, she had pretty well given up on P.W. Borter by that time. She was horrified to discover when he visited her in 1984 that he'd been a German sympathizer during the war, which was a kind of capital crime as far as she was concerned. And all the pressure she exerted on him to release Mandela, stop forced removals, repeal the apartheid laws, was unsuccessful. Uh, so my, when I was told going to South Africa was at least let's try to get progress towards a Namibia agreement and and you, it's your job to look for a successor, a sort of, rather as she had engaged with Gorbachev in Russia, a successor with whom we might be able to do business and, and help, help that successor to achieve some progress. I think that her encounter with uh, P.W. Borter was less than warm, uh, brutish, I think is the expression you use somewhere along the line. What was your, when you first met him, um, how did, what were the relations between the two of you? Well, my first meeting with him was, was to give him a very clear warning that if there were any more bombing raids on the neighboring capitals of the kind that had scuppered the Commonwealth mission to South Africa, um, he shouldn't count on the British government to protect him in any way from the consequences. So that was a very frosty first meeting. Uh, then I had a meeting about trying to save helped save the lives of the Sharp Bill 6. Uh, I met him, this, my friend Helen Susan met him on the same day as did the head of the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, Professor Haynes, and we did succeed in getting a last-minute reprieve for the Sharp Bill 6. Uh, but with him, I mean, we were able to make progress towards a peace in Namibia, eventually, but... Uh, he had no intention of releasing Mandela uh, unless Mandela was just about at death's door because he realized that if he did release Mandela, he would, as he put it, lose control. Um, the, the meetings with him were in a very dark study in the, in the Tyne House, very small one with a single green lamp on his desk. He was wearing dark glasses because he had eye trouble. Um, he, he had a, you know, a, a, a sort of domed bald head, it was like meeting the Fuhrer in his bunker, as I say in the book. And I was extremely relieved and delighted when he had to hand over to de Klerk, because I don't think that P.W. Borther should ever have been in charge of any country, let alone South Africa. He, he and Magnus Milan were the architects of the death squads, the CCB, and the unit at the Lackplatz. I'm assuming, and obviously you knew a great deal about South Africa prior to coming, but there was so much history uh, to be borne in mind, uh, not least the history of uh, between South Africa and the UK. Were you very conscious of the delicacy of the situation? I mean, if delicate is the right word. Yes, I was. I mean, when I went to South Africa, I was determined to try and 
devote a lot of my efforts to trying to understand better uh, where the Africana uh, groups were, were, were positioned because I suspected that not all of them were supportive of Bota and it turned out that they weren't. I mean, the, among the, my very good friends there who helped me a lot, but far more importantly helped the transition to democracy a lot, were Ton Voslu, head of the Nationale Purse, mm. Professor Haynes, who had declared apartheid a heresy and later on was murdered by a right-wing gunman, Peter de Lange, who was the head of the Broderbond, who said, you know, we all have to change, Herod de Koch, head of the Reserve Bank, these people, and Anton Rupert and his son. Uh, Johan, all these people were reformers and uh, together you know, I became very hopeful uh, that Africanadom would remove, move into a reformist direction mm. and it's only because it did that it was possible to achieve a peaceful transition you know, that owed a huge amount obviously not just to one great leader Mandela but also to another great leader F.W. de Klerk Although people that you mentioned they're all white Africana reformers, what access, if any, did you have to black reformers? Well, a great deal more than people thought at the time. Mm. You know, we were supposed not to be talking to the ANC. This was never true. Um, we had um, uh, a, a number two in our mission in Lusaka, whose sole job it was to talk to people like Tabo and Becky, Jacob Zuma, and so on, and others in exile. And we kept in touch with them all the way through. I met. Oliver Tembo privately on a couple of occasions. I was very impressed by Tembo. And within South Africa, we befriended a lot of former Robben Islanders who by then had been released, not all of them ANC. Uh, and also we supported in the end about 300 projects in the townships, most of which were associated with the civic organizations. So we did when, when the ban on the ANC was lifted, we, we, we discovered what we knew already, which was that we knew most of the internal leadership of the ANC, including obviously people like Trevor Manuel, like Sybil Ramaphosa. To what extent did you have the ear of all the people that you're talking about? I just want to go back to the Sharpeville 6 incident. I mean, they were, I think, preparations for their execution were well underway. To, to what extent was your voice being heard or were you seen as a sort of an interfering British ambassador? Well, P.W. Water definitely saw both Thatcher and me as interfering and complained about it. On this occasion, however, we were able to help line up also, you know, a group of people from the Dutch Reformed Church who descended on in Cape Town. They knew what we were trying to do. They told me that they would do exactly the same and on the same day. And so did my, you know, my very good friend Helen Sussman, who's my closest friend in South Africa, and uh, Colin Eglin. And the combined pressure, it's difficult to say which one made most difference, but the combined pressure worked exactly 24 hours before they were due to be executed. It was as close as that. On Helen Sussman, and you wrote um, the, the book that you wrote about her called Bright Star, was a very wonderful book. We spoke, spoke about it some, some little while ago. But you quote her, there's a wonderful line, I think, when she's trying to convince F.W. de Klerk um, that he needs to do the right thing. He, he uh, I think the line is, don't argue with the crocodile while you're still in the water. Can you just <laughs> tell, us, tell us the incident that that related to? Well, she had, you know, this wonderful biting wit um, when her attacks on the government 
were extraordinary. As you know, when John Forster said that he couldn't say anything wrong with apartheid, Helen said in Parliament, uh, why don't you try visiting one of the townships heavily disguised as a human being, she said. Uh, she was a really redoubtable person, you know, and she was a friend of de Klerk. She told me all along uh, that, like me, she was, because I had got to know de Klerk well privately before he became president, that she was very optimistic about de Klerk because she regarded him as a as a conservative, but a rational conservative who would, who would do the right thing, who would not support um, the repression by the military and police, and who would start looking for a political solution, and she was right about that. The, uh, however, I think F.W. de Klerk, and this was a su the successor that you had been looking for, when he did finally come to England to meet Margaret Thatcher, I think that, that was, was also a little bit of a um, slightly awkward situation. Well, he in, had to be cautious because he was very concerned that that he was running, to, he was heading for an election, an all-white election, a few weeks later, and he was very concerned not to say things that could be used against him in that election. So he made clear to her that he was determined to change the course of South Africa and so on, but he was very understandably non-specific as he was leaving we were both standing in the doorway at checkers and she said to me you know i wonder how far he'll be prepared to go and i said to her i think you'll find he'll be prepared to go further than you think uh, as indeed he did and uh, she was delighted with the, the fact that he was prepared to take brave decisions at the time risking his own support uh, he had difficulty carrying all his supporters with him but he did manage to do so uh, and she supported him to the full in, in fact he fwd clerk it said at the launch of your book at the british embassy he did say to, something to the effect that um there was a lot of things that he was not able to say he had all sorts of things up his sleeve but he just couldn't say it and uh, in reading the book you realize how much there was going on behind the scenes because you know obviously the newspapers were not able to report a lot of this were you, were you equally a little bit sort of dogged by having to be uh, very secret about a lot of things well, the, the, these conversations reported in the book were all confidential um, conversations. And de Klerk knew and Mandela knew that, you know, they wouldn't be published for a long time, if at all. Um, so what I'm doing is publishing them now when they, when they are part of the historical record. They can't do any harm to anybody. Uh, but they do say, you know, exactly what de Klerk said to me at a given moment and what Mandela said to me and attempts we made from time to time to, you know, to overcome difficulties. When Mandela came out of jail, um, he, he knew that we did have more influence with the South African government than others and that he needed our help. I mean, he needed our help in practical ways over his security uh, and so on. He also, training his bodyguards, he also needed our help in helping to overcome some of the obstacles he felt he was facing in negotiations. And it was, I have to say, you know, people are overawed by Mandela to some extent, understandably. But he was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, there are lots of Mandela stories in this book, and it was always fun dealing with Nelson Mandela. Yes, lots of fun, but you do say somewhere, I think it's in the prologue, that you say that this is not the usual sort of hagiography about um, former President Nelson Mandela. There, there are other sides of him. At what point did you first meet him? I think it, you met him prior to him being released. Well, he, before he was released, he sent me a, a letter from prison um, saying that uh, he, you know, he had actually thanked me verbally 
through a lawyer for the help we were giving in the townships. He then said, uh, sent me a letter saying, in effect, that he didn't agree with Thatcher about sanctions, but he would like to, what he wanted was the chance to talk to her, her and me direct about it. And I wrote back saying that we were redoubling our efforts to help get him released. And he knew that from Helen Sussman, who was able to visit him in jail. So when he came out of jail, I met him four days after he came out of jail, and he surprised the press by asking me to pass his very best wishes to the Prime Minister. Because Mandela's whole method, as you know, was always to try to co-opt anybody he could. He started with his warder in jail, who ended up as his chef and butler. He co-opted the justice minister, Kobe Kutsia, who used to help ask me to help him get Mandela released. He co-opted me. You know, he kept saying, you may be Thatcher's envoy, but you're my advisor. What do you advise? And his, fi you know, his final target for co-option with us was the prime minister. How do I get her on my side? And as I explain in the book, we had a rehearsal for the meeting with the Prime Minister. I said, you can be Mandela and I'll be Thatcher. And I put up as good an imitation of Thatcher as I could. And by then, I knew her well enough to do it quite effectively. <laughs> you and Meryl Streep. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, the, the, you know, despite the fact that this, it, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of political issues that are touched on here, there's some quite personal moments as well. I'm just looking at the first time when I think um, 22nd of February 1990, Walter Sisulu rang to say that Mandela wanted to see me in Soweto. I met him in the tiny matchbox style house he had returned to, not wanting at first to move into his wife's much larger, larger house in Deep Clove, nicknamed by the Sowetans Beverly Hills. The contrast was dramatic between these humble surroundings and the quality of the man inside. Room for your personal reflections? Did they come flooding back as you wrote the book? Well, absolutely. It was an extraordinary experience to have a first, you know, one-on-one -on -one meeting with, with Mandela. You know, it, it, it really was. And just as, as Thatcher found when he, when he met her, you know, what he, what I was so impressed by the sheer human quality, dignity, old world courtesy, magnanimity, goodwill, good intentions of this, you know, truly great man. Uh, as I mentioned, after a couple of meetings in this tiny house, I said, next time, why don't we meet in the best restaurant in Johannesburg, which Mandela thought was a great idea, not having been to one for nearly 30 years. And when we walked into the restaurant, linger longer as it was in Bramfontein, Mandela proceeded to go from table to table. You know, there, there was quite a shock, this terrorist walking into a restaurant. He went from table to table, shaking the hands of every single person there, many of whom he knew by name from the press. And then at the end of the meal, he dived into the kitchen to thank uh, everyone who'd prepared it. By the time he left the restaurant, they were all Mandela supporters. So this was a first, a first you know, illustration to me of the, the Mandela charisma in action. He did have a way, did he not? And yet, also in the book, I think you say that after, uh, um, after he gave his speech at the City Hall, um, I think that there somebody described it as a speech from hell? Yeah. I mean, the speech, when he, when he was released, everybody was so euphoric about it, they failed to notice what he actually said. And what he actually said was written for him by the ANC in Lusaka, and it was all about the armed struggle and the intensifying sanctions and so on and so forth. Now, on the next day, however, in Bishop Tutu's garden, in Archbishop Tutu's garden, Mandela started talking off the cuff. And off the cuff, Mandela, was very different, because, as I've, as I've said, Mandela's whole... 
uh, tactic was to be always to be inclusive. Mandela believed that South Africa could only succeed if all sections of the community combined to help make it succeed, not them and us. He was actually colorblind. Uh, and this co-option process continued, of course, with putting on Francois Pinard's jersey at the Rugby World Cup final. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to co-opt a few hundred thousand Afrikaners, which he succeeded brilliantly in doing. I can just change tack for one moment here. Um, the other quote, I'm looking at it towards the end of the book, uh, you say, we can hardly drop them on Lusaka or Soweto. The other cause we'd been trying to pursue throughout my time in South Africa was to prevail upon the country to sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and to destroy its small arsenal of nuclear bombs. How did you get on? Well, you had you had developed six and a half nuclear weapons of a sort of Hiroshima-Nagasaki type. They hadn't been tested, but you had very good in nuclear engineers. They almost certainly would have worked. One billion dollars had been spent on this program, and we were very worried about it um, for obvious non-proliferation reasons. Um, but de Klerk, you know, to his great credit, very, only a few weeks after he became president, ordered the enrichment facility to be terminated. And he then ordered the bombs to be destroyed. It was the finance minister who agreed with me. As he said, we can hardly... I said, what on earth do you want these weapons for? What good are they going to be? Uh, the, the previous regime felt that they were, in the Cold War days, that they were some sort of reinsurance, but the Cold War by then was over. De Klerk agreed, uh, the finance minister agreed. It was him who said we can hardly drop them on Lusaka or Soweto. <laughs> Moving back to a more personal note, as your tenure came to an end, how did you feel? I mean, you were left a, also quite a sort of a, you know, a bit of a cliffhanging moment. How did you feel leaving South Africa? Well, I, I felt um, very humbled, actually, to have met such extraordinary people. You know, in the worst of times, what did you produce? You, you produced Desmond Tutu, Helen Sussman. Uh, the older generation of ANC leaders, that is to say, uh, Tembo, Mandela, Sisulu, Catrada, were people of really very high quality. You also had very decent people trying to do the right thing on the government side. Uh, obviously, F.W. de Klerk, but also Herit Philhune and the younger Verlichte na National Party members, including Rolf Mayer and others. Um, and, you know, I was immensely impressed by all of them. I also had a lot of fun. I mean, after it was over, um, Mandela came on his, um, on his state visit to Britain, um, and he gave a concert at the Albert Hall. Um, and the, sec to, to, uh, the second half of the concert, uh, Lady Smith, Black Mambazo were going to be playing. So I told them at half time, uh, when they play, you must stand up and dance as you always do in South Africa. And Mandela said, yes, but I'm, I'm sitting next to the Queen. And I said, nevertheless, please get up and dance, which he probably no doubt intended to do anyway, which he did. The Duke of Edinburgh looked over his shoulder rather anxiously at this, but then decided he'd better get, get up and dance as well. The Queen, after a few minutes, decided that she'd actually better join in <laughs> to everybody's amusement and amazement. And uh, that was part of the sort of Mandela magic. He also developed the habit of calling her Elizabeth, uh, ringing her up and saying, Elizabeth, how are the children? Now, this is not a form of address 
allowed to anyone else on the planet except the Duke of Edinburgh. But she she adored Mandela, uh, as did you know pretty well everybody who ever came close to him. And it was my great good fortune to have a lot of meetings with him, just the two of us, um, very shortly in the few months after he came out of jail. What a wonderful note on which to close. However, I do just have one last question. Have things subsequent to those years, have things unfolded in a way that you thought or well, hoped? Well, thought or hoped, not, not, not hoped in the sense that um, I think that people are losing sight or have been losing sight of Mandela's vision. Mandela's vision, as I said, was inclusive. If you want, for instance, to pursue land reform, which you absolutely must, there needs to be an appeal to the white farming community to help mentor, train, and assist the new black farm farming community or black farmers or, or communities who are taking over the farms. Uh, and if that sort of inclusive uh, method is pursued, I believe that the government will always get a response. Uh, the divisive uh, or them and us approach is very unlikely to get as good a response. And clearly, um, the country has got serious problems today. You know, these power cuts are very damaging to the economy um, and they're going to go on for another two or three years, we are told. Uh, South Africa used to generate enough electricity for the whole of Southern Africa. So this is a self-inflicted problem. But the problems you face today are much less critical than they were when I was there. And with goodwill and a combined effort by all sections of the community, you certainly can overcome them. Hmm. That was Lord Robin Rennick uh, talking about his book, Mission to South Africa, Diary of a Revolution. And that was published by Jonathan Paul. SFM Literature and next it's time for our book club in which we take a closer look at who does what in the publishing print book business and don't forget if you've got thoughts on this you're, you're welcome to feed into this particular slot you can tell us what you'd like to know about or, or perhaps what you do in the book industry and how you're moving and shaking it up well today we have in the studio Paul Mills he is with us he's a member of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association he's also owner of Antiquarian Auctions who have just launched themselves a brand new website on account of there being such a huge interest in Antiquarian Books lovely to have you with us Paul thank, thank you very you. much thank you very much can we establish what Antiquarian is I mean we, we bandy the word antique about often what Antiquarian means what exactly yes that's difficult to define but really uh, I mean books can come quite scarce in a very short time or very old People mostly understand it to be books about 100, 200 years old, but nowadays it encompasses many other things. And of course also includes, as well as books, uh, ephemera, letters, diaries, photographs, so a whole broad range of collectible uh, books and paper material. Uh, what's, the, what's the line between collectible, I mean seriously collectible, something in which you'd be interested in, something that's just an old book? Well, I don't, well, that's difficult. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. You know, many very recent books are of enormous value. Mm. Uh, something that someone might have read in the last 10 or 15 years, the first Harry Potter book, uh, uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, published in, in, in 1996. So now of enormous value because it was published in a very short, small edition, whereas a book of uh, rather boring sermons by a 
uh, cleric in the 1500s or 1600s may not be of much value. So it's entirely really what the book contains, what is interest and uh, how people react to it. So it's not necessarily so much its age of it as its value. Indeed, yes, or its scarcity, in fact, yes. or the, the interest in it. Um, a lot of people read, say, the, the Harry Potter books, yes. and, and uh, in later editions were published in enormous not numbers. Not so many people were interested in what that old cleric had to say. No, sadly not. <laughs> yes. Sadly not. Although, yeah. Is it also to do with the quality of the book, uh, and I don't mean the condition of the book, but I mean the, the style in which the book was produced, you know, it's a, bit of a fabulous edition, it's got all the right leather binding, beautiful end pages and so on and so forth. Do, is that something that needs to be factored in? Yes, of course it is. And uh, uh, the first published book was printed in 1450, the Gutenberg Bible, and since then there have been many fine printers of books and illustrators. Uh, so, yes, there's a tradition of books called private press books, for example, mm. which are books produced. Uh, William Morris, for example, Kelmscott Press, people may, may, may know um, any of his books published towards the end of the 19th century and are enormously sought after because they're very beautifully produced, very beautifully illust illustrated by famous illustrators of the time and very often beautifully bound. So something like that has an intrinsic beauty about it, uh, as well as, of course, having some literary value. I might be wrong, but it seems that there's an increasing interest, so not just because people are, are interested in older books but or, or valuable books, but also because there are a lot of people shifting on from books. Uh, you know, many people have got sort of uh, shelves full, walls full of books and sort of moving them on. In fact, I had a letter from a lady by the name of Wendy Ray. Wendy, if you're listening, um, she is in uh, Vinkhill, Link, oh, Linkhill, sorry. She's in Linkhills in KZN, and she's got some lovely old books, and she's just trying to find her for them. Uh, she's got two very special copies of the Holy Bible, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, Keeper of Genesis, Dictionary of Geological Terms. She's got um, Peoples of the Sea, Oedipus, and I can't, I can't quite read her writing, but she's got a whole lot of books. Now, somebody like that who's been sitting with these books, presumably they've been looked after and in quite good condition, what does she do with them? How does she get an opinion? Well, that's the enormous exciting thing about what we do, you know, as, uh, as operating uh, um, an online antiquarian auction business. People bring us things like this, or they phone or they write letters, and of course everything is worth looking at. Uh, sadly, most things are have no particular value, but in, in between there are always wonderful things that turn up. She mentions a Bible, well, that could be very interesting depending on how old it is and uh, where it was printed and published. Uh, a couple of other things, maybe the Oedipus and one or two other books, all of which are potentially valuable. So they should be looked at. People must always be aware of what they have and have someone um, knowledgeable look at it before. Many people discard things for the wrong reasons, yeah. really, which is sad. Particularly, as I said earlier, they discard perhaps letters and photograph albums and books uh, and uh, diaries and so on of perhaps relatives. Somehow they sometimes think perhaps they are a bit too personal, but yes. once, once they've once removed, they are, of course, eyewitness accounts of their period and by definition unique. So they're also wonderful to, you know, very often people bring us these things and it's very exciting to, 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 to research them and find out what they are. So if you've got a, a collection of letters that somebody thinks, oh, you know, it was just my great-grandfather, nobody's really interested in him or her, uh, it, it, it might be of interest because it may be a period in time, but now let's get on to online. What do they do? Do they 
shoot, take photographs of it, scan it through? What well, if they can, I mean, they can write, they can email, they, uh, if they can take digital photographs and scans, mm -hmm. that obviously helps us, because that initial selection, uh, you know, you can often tell from what you can see if it's worth pursuing. But then, then the, they have to be shown to somebody. Um, we run our antiquarian auctions from uh, offices in Cape Town, uh, but we have agents over the, all over the country. Mm -hmm. uh, antiquarian auctions is unusual because it's, it's different from a normal auction house. What we do is we, we're essentially a platform in which book dealers uh, around the country, not private people, we, we limit our sellers to uh, book dealers. So hopefully they have knowledge and experience and the expertise to look at books, describe them, and then list them on the auctions. It's a sort of filtering process, if you see if you see what I mean. Yeah. So if she's in Durban, we have an agent in Durban, uh, and I, I easily put her onto uh, onto the agent. And uh, in fact, I think your agent is is Joanne Rushby. She's at Ike yes, Thoughtshop. She's very okay. good, and she would be she'd be the ideal person to approach with a letter. If she can take the books into her, that would be good. Or you know, she will visit visit her and then advise her which ones are suitable for auction. We would then work with the seller to set a reserve price below which we won't sell it so in a sense we're on the same side we both want to get the highest price possible and uh, so it's a cooperative uh, effort to whom do you sell and what sort of prices are we looking at because i'm sure people are sort of dollar signs <laughs> yes, you know, I'm always scouring their books I mean, well it's it's enormous it varies enormously yeah. to whom do we sell well via the internet of course you can reach the whole world we have people, and bidding is equally easy from Alaska to New Zealand. You know, you can, it's all done online, it's all done in real time. Foreign currencies are all shown, so you know exactly where you are. And bidding is very, very easy. So we have uh, clients signed up from all over the world. Um, how, do you, how do you bid? Um how do you bid for something like this? I mean, do you not need to hold it, see it, touch it, feel it, or...? Uh, yes. Well, uh, obviously, to, to touch book, books yeah. is, the, is, the, is the... You know, I agree with you. I mean, one can't detach from the feel of a book entirely. Online is a bit remote, but on the other hand, it does make it very easy. Uh, you, you can have un unlimited number of illustrations illustrations of a book on, on on the auction. It's described. People can then consult the the sellers for more information uh, until the bidding actually starts. So you can do everything but touch it and smell it. Yeah. unfortunately, yeah, just to use your imagination. But you can do much more online. You know, with the sort of ease of which photographs can be put on and uh, yes. you know, so yeah. it's, it, it's it's not quite, but it's almost uh, like, like uh, touch yes, and and unless you're somebody like Wendy who's written a hand handwritten yes. letters. Well, that's written. nice to see, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. <laughs> that in itself possibly one yes. day could be worth something. Well, it could be. Um, what else does it tell you on your on your website? I mean, if somebody is wanting to do a bit of research into a, a category of book, you know, maybe it's books on, on art or horse riding or Africana uh, yes. which must be huge can they go into a category on your site? yes they can I mean we've been running auctions now for better part of well 10 years but five years in the current system so there's quite a database of things that have already been sold so if you think you have something probably the first thing to do is to go to the website and say well I've got this book enter the, the search system enter the author and the title and see if we sold one before and if there have been several sales you can get some idea of what the value might be and what you could possibly get for it just looking at your info here about your upgraded uh, site because it has been sort of it's, it's sort of been freshly launched um i think you've got a, a largely local clientele but you've got a, an international group of people because as you say things can happen all around the world but given our history here in south africa and interestingly listening to what uh, robin rennick had to say and um, his uh, reports 
which back in 19, the 80s, well, I suppose it would have been done online even then, but um, those reports in themselves would be worth quite something. Oh, yes. Anything that Robin Rennick wrote at the time, of course, most of it, I suppose, would be confidential and in the government yes. uh, papers in Britain, but if anything emerged that was um, that he'd produced or written at the time would be enormously valuable. Likewise, anything written by Nelson Mandela. I mean, his books, signed books, fetch a great deal of money, but any letters or anything that he wrote, particularly before 1990 when he was released, are very scarce, of course. By definition, he was in jail, mm. and so he couldn't do very much. But uh, they were enormously interesting, and they really fill in uh, the gaps. I mean, this is what I think Renick's book does. It fills in the gaps of what happened at that time. So in terms of archives, do you have an archive? I mean, does an antiquarian auctions, do you have an archive of books? Uh, you know, because books themselves, I went to the uh, Women's Library at the London School of Economics some little while ago, and they have rows and rows of those sort of wheel-out shelves with ancient books. Well, pretty ancient. They were some dating back to the 17th century. It was all temperature controlled. Do you have an archive of very old books? I know the Centre for the Book, for instance, in Cape Town. In, oh, in South Africa. Oh, yes, we do. But, I mean, but you as a... No, personally, no, we don't. I mean, we have a reference library, which uh, we use for our own research and reference. But uh, we don't. We sell all the items that are on the auction, so by definition, we don't keep them. Uh, obviously, there are a number of books always in stock, so to speak, waiting yeah. to be sold or to be researched. But uh, no, we don't keep an archive like that. For research, we rely on what you can find online and on the national libraries the, uh, and the archives here, which are very well organised, and you can go and do research on uh, if you're interested in particular. Just lastly, sadly, we've run out of time, Paul, sure. but has anybody come to you with a real wow, and you've said, wow, what a little gem this is? Oh, yes, I mean, no, uh, frequently, and people don't often realise... Well, Give well, us an well, example. Oh, well, um, well, let's think. I mean, uh, someone brought us a copy of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye oh. recently. Now, uh, the iconic book, he only wrote one major, major book, and very scarce. Everyone read it. I mean, I remember reading it. You probably did, too. And uh, to, for a nice f copy of the first edition of that to turn up in good condition is enormously valuable today, particularly. And so something like that would be greatly... What would it be worth? Oh, thousands, tens of thousands really? of brands, yes. Well, well, there you go. That's something to think about. So go and scour your bookshelves. And, and even if you don't get rid of them or, or try and trade them, maybe you should just cherish them a little bit more. Paul Mills, thank you very much. So thank let you. me give out the details of the website, the brand new website, which is antiquarianauctions.com antiquarianauctions.com and if you are in KZN Ike's Books and Joanne Rushby is the person to see there otherwise you can get hold of Paul directly on the on the website lovely thank you very much thank you very much Thanks. indeed you're listening to SAFM Literature stay with us here on SFM Literature, I'm not sure that an antiquarian book would quite be the one to read out loud, but then you never know. How about J.P. Salinger being read out loud? Um, so, uh, but then again, why not? But next week is on March the 4th, I think it is, it's World Read Aloud Day, which is a, a wonderful image. Wouldn't you just imagine the whole world standing up with a book in their hand reading aloud? Yes, it would be quite noisy. So, but as a concept, it's really a call to action. But, uh, well, what's the story behind it? Well, Carol Bloch is absolutely the right person to talk to. She's director of Preisai. She is, uh, the, and they're the people that drive Nali Bali, which is all about story sharing. But reading aloud is a very, very specific type of story sharing, isn't it, Carol? Yes, it is. Um, Nancy, you're making me smile at the thought of the whole world standing up I know, it's lovely, aloud. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's a very special kind of reading, and it's one that somehow doesn't um, doesn't hold the importance that it should in the minds of of in the imagination of of South African parents and teachers. So you know, Nadi Bali has for a few years now. Um, gotten involved with World Read Aloud Day to try and um, get everyone coming on board and just sort of thinking about what it is that Reading Aloud actually achieves, what it does, what's it for, why are we, why are we promoting it and, and trying to get as many people as possible on to experience what it feels like to read with children who might normally never do this and, and of course the intention behind it is to carry on beyond the one day. Yeah. Why is it important then? I mean, you know, I suppose the goal is to get everybody, all the children reading as fast as they possibly can and then put books into their little paws. But the, the thing about reading to them aloud, it seems to have different functions, what, which are what? Well, yes, because um, one, of the, one of the difficult things for, for many of us to understand is that when a child learns to read, what they're doing is bringing um, what they have in their mind to the page. So we, we often think of learning to read as decoding text, so that, you know, learning the alphabet, putting sounds together, making words, and so on. But in fact, it's, it's much, much more than that. And so the more that you have um, stories, and especially great stories, metaphorical stories, stories with a rich language that conjures up images in your mind and, and, and sort of transports you, um, the more of those kinds of stories you have, the more you um, grow the, the language in your mind, the grammar, the knowledge, and so on, so that when you actually come to a page, when you have to learn to read, you bring what you know to that um, experience. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons. Um, it's an important reason in South Africa because, as you know, we have these um, huge challenges getting children to learn to read. Another one, of course, is just to share the love of a story and, and little children particularly, but even um, children as they grow and get older, um, you know, we, we often can appreciate something that's much more complex if somebody else shares it with us, especially with reading. Little children, as they're learning language, they can't necessarily produce or, or, or read for themselves what they can hear from others. So it's just this incredible sort of stretching of, of our minds. You know, uh, were, you wrote a piece about it in the latest Mail and Guardian. It's called Brain Food for Growing Minds. Mm. And there were a couple of th pieces that I so related to. You say that brain areas, um, that the brain scans show how narrative stimulates many other parts of our brains, not just the language region, regions. For instance, brain areas dealing with smell are activated when we read evocative words like jasmine or petrol. And, and as you might say, the word jasmine. Um, something's going to happen to your mind that goes ding <laughs> and I think that's such an exciting thing in children who might not they might they might or might not ever clap eyes on Jasmine but um, in, in its context it evokes something doesn't it yes that's right and, and, and I think the thing is that the more you have your mind stimulated by these kind of um, evocative images the more you, you can't help relating to the, to the power of story and um, I mean, it's also that um, we somehow, as as humans, are, are well. What Jonathan God, Godshaw, who who write, wrote the book, the storytelling animal, he says we're addicted to story as a as a human race. And it does seem that when we 
hear stories about characters, about people, about the trials and tribulations of life and so on, we can't help. Our brains sort of cannot, in a mechanical sense, they can't help identifying with, with the story. We, of course, do develop the power to distinguish whether it's real or not and so on, but that, that incredibly, um, that incredible sort of empathetic response that we have to to story is is an incredible force that we really need to harness um, much more than we do. For many people, the issue will be, oh, well, that's all very well, but what am I reading aloud? I mean, you, mm. you, um, another quote you've got here is that it's so wonderful to hear, for instance, his leathery hands or her <laughs> velvet voice as opposed to his strong hands or her, her pleasing voice. You know, th there's, yeah. a, there's a whole sort of vocabulary language and, and sense of feel and touch and all those senses. Mm. But the issue really is what story to read. Well, now, exactly. And Nancy, you know, I, I often do feel like I do sound a bit like a stuck record, although we don't have records that much anymore, but, you know, I, I have to bring up the issue of language because, um, you know, we don't have that repository of great stories yet in African languages that to share with children when we read aloud. So, I mean, that has been one of the functions of Nelly Bowley. You mean we don't have them in print? We don't have them in yeah. print, no. And we have, and, and, and Storytelling as a tradition is, is a very different um, kind of thing to, to picture books and, and, and storybooks. So, so there's a whole process that needs to be accelerated and happen far more than it is now um, in order that we do have the great stories to share with, with all of our children and not only those children who have access to, to English easily. Well, that g gives me a clue to promote your site, which is um, org, where you can actually download special read-aloud stories. Yes, you can. And um, um, in particular, for, for World Read-Aloud Day, we've partnered with Grino Mthope, who, as everyone knows, is one of is our great storyteller, mama of storytelling for children. And, and she wrote a, a, a story. It's a sweet story that can be shared with with, with with everyone, really. I mean, that's also the beauty of reading aloud is that, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be for a particular age group. We can all just kind of collect together and enjoy the event. Um, Carol, enjoy yeah. reading aloud on the 4th of March. Whoever you find to listen to, I'm sure there'll be lots of willing pairs of ears. Thank you very much. Going to give out the details just now. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Carol Block of, uh, of the Project for the Study of Alternative Education in South Africa.